Welcome back to The Francisca Show, a Jewish coffeehouse podcast where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I am Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, coach, and also your host. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to thank Shayna Altine for helping me edit this podcast. This is a No More Silence spot on the calendar, but we're I'm releasing it on the regular episode with the regular intro because it's not somebody's personal story. It's more bringing awareness to the topic of abuse. And this one is bringing awareness to abuse that is specific to the Jewish community. Uh, so we brought in Keshet from the organization Ora to uh, talk about this terrible form of abuse that exists in the Jewish community. I hope you benefit strongly from this episode. And next week, check back in for a for an episode with a creative. Also, in case you do not listen to this segment on a regular basis, I would like to let you know that I've transitioned into serving the artist and creative community to help you monetize and make your business model profitable. So if you're interested in a discovery session with me, definitely reach out. Today on the show with us, we have Kesha Ora from the Ora organization, the organization for the resolution of Agunot. This is a special on the No More Silence segment, and we're doing this to bring awareness to a new type of abuse that we're talking about on this podcast, and it's a terrible yet important type of abuse that needs to be discussed that's especially or exclusively relevant to the Jewish Orthodox community. So Keshet is the executive director and she is here representing this organization and I'm going to add a new question. I hope we have time to talk about all the things that we need to discuss to get a general idea and the basic understanding of so many complicated issues that exist within the Jewish halachic system, which is a terrible thing to say, but it's a loophole that's been abused and uh, women are primarily the ones who are suffering because of this. And I'll give you the floor, Keshet. Um, maybe give us a little bit of background first on how you got into this and then we'll jump right in. Sure, so I got into this, I'm a lawyer by training. And in my first summer after law school, I wanted to do something related to domestic abuse. And I happened to intern at an organization that had just gotten a grant to work on abuse cases in the firm community. And I'm a boss too, but I never really thought about there being abuse in the firm community, but it sounded interesting. So I went ahead and did that internship and it really kind of hooked me. I found that it was such an interesting experience doing that work while also being from myself. And what I saw was that even though at the time I was working on the civil side of the divorce, not specifically with the get, the get was almost like this boogeyman that was there in the shadows that everything was sort of happening around. And so a lot of the strategy and the decisions had to do with let's do this so we'll trade it for that in exchange for the get, or let's do it this way because it'll be better for the get. And that the get you know, was a huge motivating factor in a lot of the other elements. So then after law school, I did a fellowship, also working in this area. And then when I heard about the opportunity at Aura, I figured it would be just a good chance to learn more about this get piece since I could see that it was such a 
such a sort of central factor in these divorces. So that's what I did. And then eight years later, still at ORA, um, and really kind of sounds strange to say fell in love with this issue because it's such a difficult and I think, you know, spiritually challenging issue as well. But it's there's something really powerful, I think, about working on this topic and also something really interesting about how it really comes at the intersection of halacha and civil law. And it deals with a lot of just like interesting tangles that a lot of people are unfamiliar with. So for anyone listening out there, let's just bring it down to the basics. What's a get, get refusal? How does that happen? Where do they get stuck? So a get is a Jewish divorce. It's totally different from a civil divorce. So you can have your civil divorce, but if you don't have your get, then in religious communities, you're still considered married. And the reason that makes such a difference is that if you want to move on and start a new relationship and have more children, in traditional Jewish communities, you really cannot do that without the get. So you can end up in this limbo where you might have everything else finished, you have your divorce, the finances are worked out, the parenting is worked out, but because you don't have your get, you can't move on with your life and you're very stuck. And so in terms of where these cases get stuck, they can get stuck in a lot of different ways. One issue that comes up a lot is sort of using the get as leverage in the divorce. So you can have a situation where a couple is getting divorced, they disagree, as they often do, on what they each think is sort of a fair resolution to the issues. And the husband might say, well, if you want the get, then I'm going to keep the house or the parenting is going to look like this or somehow try to influence the terms. Um, I'll also clarify, because I do think this is important, that for the most part, get refusal, which is, again, a situation where someone's not giving that Jewish divorce and keeping their partner stuck. It usually happens with men refusing to give it to women, but it can happen with women refusing to take the get. The get has to be given willingly and it has to be received willingly. So on either end of the process, that can break down and you can end up with challenges. And I would say as well, one of the aspects of going through the Jewish divorce process that's so challenging is that in addition to going through the court system, which is complicated, you also have this whole system of religious courts and religious law that you have to navigate. And for the most part, your attorney doesn't know the first thing about those religious pieces. And your rabbi, who might know about the religious side, doesn't typically know about, you know, New York state matrimonial law. And so it's really hard for people to figure out a way to move forward with their divorce that doesn't create problems either on the religious side or on the civil side, because ultimately what they want to do is come out with their get, with a settlement that is fair and that they can live with going forward and really with all of the tools that they need to move forward and to build a a strong and happy life post-divorce. Right. And I'm sure it's a little bit different in Israel than it is in any other country where where the in Israel, the civil divorce and the religious divorce happens together. But there are still issues in Israel. (laughs) Clearly, the get uh, the Aguna issue is not an exclusively Chutzla Arts issue. Can you just comment a little bit about on that? Yeah. So in a way, the Aguna issue in Israel and in the U.S. are both problems, but they're almost opposite problems. So in 
Israel, the problem in some ways is that you don't have a separation between church and state. And in the United States, the problem is that you do. So in terms of what that actually means in Israel, because there's no separation, whether someone is religious or not, cares about the get or not, doesn't matter. They still have to have a get. We also see, and we work with Agunot who live in Israel, whose husbands are in the U.S. or in South America or some other location, they actually have problems selling a home because they're still legally married and both names need to be on the deed and on the sale. And so you can have all these logistical complications in Israel because you can't separate it. The other challenge is that even though the Israeli government does have the right to sanction someone for refusing a get, they can even put someone in prison for refusing a get, they're not always so eager to use those powers. And I think in some ways the biggest problem that we see in Israel is just the delay. It's a very slow process. Just to get a ruling that you deserve a get can take years and years. And what I see working with get refusers is that people really harden over time. And it's very important to intervene earlier on in these cases because getting someone, there's a lot less flexibility six years after a separation than there is six months after a separation. Um, in the United States, the challenge we have is that we can't we can't so simply go to the civil government and ask them to deal with a religious issue. So if someone is withholding a get and a beaten, a religious court has told them you have to give a get and they're not listening, that person is violating Jewish law, right? Just the same as if they were eating a bacon cheeseburger every day. But just like we don't put people in jail for eating bacon cheeseburgers, we also don't put them in jail for not giving a get. So you can end up in a situation where someone's doing something wrong and it's clearly wrong, but because of that constitutional separation, it's not so simple to then go to the court and say, you have to help resolve this injustice. So figuring out any ways of bringing the get issue into the American civil system is very complicated. And there's a lot of kind of twisting it into a pretzel to make it work, um, which can make it challenging. Well, and I'm going to, I want to go into this further later on and say there has been a lot of intervention or some intervention that's completely new in the Jewish community from a rabbinic uh, standpoint. And I'll want to touch upon that. But let's go back to a more basic questions. And uh, why would somebody would withhold a get or not want to accept a get? So where does that come from? And how or why is this domestic abuse? Also, another aspect, if you'd like to touch upon that, does does somebody who refuses get automatically somebody who's abusive from the beginning? Or is it somebody who could technically be a great husband? I mean, nobody was a great husband or wife, and then you end up in a divorce. I think it's a two to tango situation most of the time. And then the situation of the divorce or the threat of the divorce turns somebody into the abusive, and I'm using quote quotes here, becomes that abusive representative in the process? Yeah, so that's a great question. I would say on the surface, we see three top reasons why people don't cooperate with the get. And again, that's either refusing to give it or refusing to take it. One and the most common is extortion. I want certain things out of this divorce. I want jewelry. I want a certain parenting schedule. I want the house. And I'm going to use the get as my tool in order to get what I want. That's one piece. Another piece is just spite. I spoke to, when I first started at Aura, I was a case advocate. So I would speak to get refusers all day. 
And I remember one of them told me I would rather burn down everything I own than see her get a penny. So you have people who are in that mindset where it's just, I don't even care if it's hurting me. If it's hurting her, I'm happy. And then, and this third group in some ways is the hardest to deal with are the people who are still in love and they want to continue the relationship. And for them, the get is that final, you know, spiritual connection between the two of them. And they don't want to break it because they didn't want the divorce. Some divorces are unilateral. You have one person who desperately wants to continue and one person who does not. And it's very painful for the person left behind. I do think, though, and this sort of gets to your question, that underneath all those reasons, the common thread is really this element of control. That in the extortion situation, what the person is saying, bottom line, is that I am the one that's going to decide what this settlement looks like. Not the judge, not the mediator, not the beast in. I'm the one that's going to make that decision. When it comes to spite, it's essentially I'm going to decide what punishment I think you deserve for being so terrible. And I'm the one that's going to make that choice. And even in the the love situation, where I think it, it's the most empathetic in a lot of ways, there's still an element where I am the one that's going to decide when this ends and if this ends. And the fact that you don't want to be here, ultimately, that's not really impacting my viewpoint. And again, when I'm talking about that third situation, I'm not talking about someone who just found out that their spouse wants a divorce two weeks ago. I'm talking about situations where months and months, if not years and years have passed, and the person is still saying, no, no, I'm getting back together. So underneath all those reasons is really that element of control. And when we talk about domestic abuse, a lot of us think domestic abuse is beating people up and it's physical and violent. But really, the way we define abuse is that it's a pattern of controlling behavior. It's not just one thing necessarily, but it's sort of a repeated history where one person is the one who makes the decisions in the relationship and the other person's thoughts or goals, they're just not really relevant. There's one person who's sort of driving the ship and that's it. And I think we really see that with get refusal and part of why the work that we do at Aura is so fraught is that we work on a lot of cases where every other control opportunity has been taken away. They're not civilly married anymore. There's already been a custody decision. They're not financially intertwined together. They're not paying child support. There's no other thread, but the get is kind of like this final thread that's connecting these two people, even after everything else has been cut. And it becomes sort of the focus sometimes for all of the control that has been part of the relationship up until then to really build up. And I think to answer your question, we wonder this a lot internally, you know, are all of our cases domestic abuse the whole way through or are they cases that develop? And so one thing that we believe in really strongly at Aura is that get refusal is itself a form of domestic abuse, that the decision to keep someone in this marriage that they don't want to be in, that that act on its own is all about power and control. And again, this is not just someone deciding at a given moment to keep their spouse stuck. This is someone waking up every morning, day after day, year after year, even after counter pressure saying, no, I really want to keep this person stuck. So it's really this continued assertion of control that's part of the get refusal. At Aura, we deal with different types of situations. We have a helpline that deals with, a, I would say, a wider variety of 
types of divorces. And then we have our, our active Aguna program, which deals with cases where it's already been going on for some time. There's already been some beaten or religious court intervention. And those cases have professional case advocates who work with the Agunotes. And I would say for the Aguna advocacy cases, I can count on one hand the number of cases where the relationship was ever healthy or functional. These are typically marriages that starting in Shavagraphos in the first week of marriage are already pointing to serious concerns and, you know, sort of deteriorate from there. And the marriages might continue for 10 years or 20 years or six months. It really varies in terms of time frame. But they're generally relationships that have been characterized by control and abuse almost from the beginning and the get is sort of the final expression of that abuse as opposed to the first time that shows up. Right. And before we move on to potential solutions that you have been a part of creating, I'd like to touch upon community responses. Like I know the support of the community or uh, how families respond and participate plays a big role in a lot of these cases. And what have been your observations in the most effective or ineffective ways? Like anyone listening, if there's a way a family or a community could be supportive, what could that look like? So I guess I'll start with what I think support doesn't look like, and then it sort of transitions from there. A lot of times when a divorce happens in a community, the general feeling is I don't want to get involved. That's messy. I'm afraid that one person's going to be mad if I speak to the other person or I invite them for Shabbos or whatever it is. And there's the feeling of like, I just want to stay out of it. And the problem is that when everyone stays out of it, first of all, people don't get the support they need. If any, if there's ever a moment in your life where you need your friends and your community, it's when you're going through a divorce. So the fact that all of a sudden everyone's taking you off their Shabbos list is really devastating for people. And I think in addition, when everyone doesn't stay, when everyone is afraid to get involved, it also means that situations can really escalate and become much more dangerous where they could have been helped along earlier. So I'll give you an example. There's a case I was working on where at first no one wanted to get involved and push the husband to give a get. Finally, about five years after the separation and about two years after the civil divorce, family members and friends started agreeing that, yes, he should give a get. Um, even then, we had a situation where this man was getting three invitations a week because everyone felt like, well, I'm his only connection. I have to keep him engaged with the community. And it took years at that point. And actually, in this particular case, a get has still not been given. And I think what went wrong in that case is that no one pushed him earlier. And by the time this man was four or five years into his gout refusal, it was really too late to move him. It was kind of like putting your feet in cement and then coming back two weeks later. You're not moving them. He really got himself stuck in a position and he got himself so stuck that even once his support fell away, he was too entrenched in his position to even look her up and notice that. So I think it's very important that communities intervene early and that there are certain baselines. One thing that we say all the time at ORA is that we work on get refusal. We understand that every other aspect of the divorce is complicated and we are glad that we're not the ones who have to decide who gets custody or what happens to the house because those are really big and weighty decisions. But that the get is actually not that complicated. Once you're separated, the marriage is over. It's not coming back together, 
you should give the get. And using the get as sort of your insurance policy to make sure you like the divorce settlement at the end is not a fair way to negotiate. So we really try to share the argument that even though a get refuser is always going to say, oh, it's so complicated, it's so complicated, you can't possibly tell me what to do because in order to comment on my situation, you need to sift through, you know, 10 feet of litigation documents. It's really not true. It's very simple. When the marriage is over, the get should be given. There aren't great reasons to delay or withhold a get. And when communities have a baseline rule that you have to give a get on time or like we don't want you to be part of our community, that makes a huge difference. Because I guess the last thing I'll say on this is that abusers are social people too. You know, we all need support. We all need a community around us. And when there's a communal cost to behaving in an abusive way, people are less likely to do it and to do it long-term. So communities can have a powerful impact, but they have to get past the, I don't want to get involved. And then the, well, it's really too complicated for me to have an opinion on. I think those are the biggest barriers. Right. So let's bring up the the work that you have been a part of creating, the preventative work that can be done and that has recently gotten the endorsement, well, a separate type of document like this got the endorsement of the Yeshiva slash Haredi community, which is completely new novelty within the Jewish halachic system, I guess. Absolutely. So in terms of solutions, there's a lot that we can do. Um, We definitely at ORA have our advocacy team that will do social media campaigns and demonstrations and really work with both sides closely. But as we've grown as an organization, we keep trying to intervene earlier and earlier. So we set up a helpline where people call us when they're thinking about divorce or just getting started because we realized that just giving people information on how the process works and which baked-in they should be going to and you know, should they file their weight and some of that, at least helping them get access to resources to answer those questions is so critical. And then actually the next step to intervene, and I think the best spot, is actually before the couple gets married at all by having them sign a prenup. And basically, prenups get a bad reputation because we hear prenup and we think like, you know, L.A. celebrities and gold diggers and that sort of thing. It's not that kind of a prenup. Um, It's really a commitment to not behave abusively with the get later. So if I ever have a couple in our office nervous about signing it, I'll say the only thing you are leaving on the table is the opportunity to be a jerk about the get later. And if you want to keep that opportunity, then you guys should talk about that. And, you know, what's going on there. But that's it. That's the only thing you're leaving on the table. And essentially what the prenup does is that, you know, we mentioned earlier how getting the get into the civil system is so complicated. The beauty of the prenup, and again, different prenup versions do this in a different way, is that it's a legally binding document that you can bring into court to enforce that deals with the issue of the get. The other great thing about the prenup is that it gets people at their most flexible point. They're young and in love and getting married. It's easy to get them to sign something where in the event of a divorce, getting them to sign that same document would be almost impossible. And I think the most important part of the prenup is actually the social piece that in communities where everyone signs a prenup, where rabbis will not marry couples without signing a prenup it really sends the message that we don't do get refusal here. And we've actually seen at ORA that as the prenup has become 
really part of the fabric of the community in most modern Orthodox communities, we're not getting cases anymore from those neighborhoods. Our cases are coming from different communities now because it really sends a cultural message that this is not okay here and the costs of making the get complicated socially are gonna be too high, you don't wanna deal with that. And so I think the most important part of the prenup is just the social message and the commitment that everyone makes. And one thing that I tell couples as well is that even though a prenup seems very unromantic, especially again, when we think about you know LA and protecting your money and all of that, actually in some ways you could argue that there's a romantic side to it. Because what you're basically saying is that I wanna make sure that the right thing happens. And even if the worst happens to our relationship and I'm not in sort of a mental place to do the right thing, I still wanna make sure that you get the, the dignity and the respect that you deserve, even if I can't give it to you because I'm too angry and upset in the moment. And so I think it actually just sends a powerful message about what we value in relationships. Absolutely. And based on the feedback I've been getting from people and we signed a the RCA prenup before we got married um and I recommend it to my friends when they get married they don't always listen to me <laughs> but um what what can you do if you're already married there is an option and I feel like people think of, I think people think differently even if they're very into the prenup and they're like yes it's important as a post-nup, they find it offensive to the marriage. They find it inappropriate to bring into the marriage. What are your thoughts on that? So it's a great question. I actually didn't know about the prenup when I got married, so I signed a post-nup. Um, and I think the key for prenup messages and post-nup messages is that it should never be personal. If you're signing a prenup or post-nup because you think you're going to need it, that's almost, you know, that's a different level. What we really try to present it as is that it's something you do for other people. So I think people might have that hesitation about bringing it up to their spouse and what's their spouse going to think. But we try to frame it as, you know, we have this great marriage. We are the people who should be doing this first because the engaged couples who are still trying to get to know each other are less secure in the relationship. It's harder in a way for them to do it. Where I think a couple that really feels secure in their relationship, it's easier for them to go ahead and take this step. But I think it has to be framed as something not personal. I care about this issue. And if we sign it, that's one more couple who signs it. And if everyone signs it, then the people who need it will have it. And it's not about me and you. And I'll say one more thing. We have communities that will host post-nup parties where people just come and sign it. And I love that because it's very light. It doesn't feel like this intense personal thing that one couple is doing. It's like everyone comes and signs it and there's music and, you know, wine and cheese and everyone's having a good time. And it really sets a light tone, which I think is what it should be. Because the idea is for people to show that it's not something you do because you're nervous. It's something you do because you care about this issue. And we've had couples sign post-naps who have been married 50 years who, you know, will take pictures with their post-naps and send them to us. And it's just about sending the message that we care about this issue and we care about each other. I think there's a real Koyistrela Raven Zelazev piece to this where we're all in it together and we care about each other. And if I'm fortunate enough to not have this problem, somewhere out there, another person will. And if my signing this document makes a difference for that other future person who will need this kind of help, then why not? We have a responsibility to each other to make a difference on these issues. Yes, absolutely. And could you just tell us how the yeshivish 
prenup is different than the, and do they have a postnup also than the RCA one? Yes, absolutely. I'm not sure if they have a postnup. That's a good question. There are two main differences. There are a few smaller ones, but two main differences is that the RCA prenup is to the best in of America, which is under the RCA umbrella. So it's the prenup to a specific beacon. The um, Yashar Coalition prenup, which is this new, more Haredi one, is one where you write in your own beitin. Now, I think they are working on having more a specific list of batidin and more specific guidance on what that looks like. One thing to flag is that I always tell people a prenup is only as strong as the beitin it's sending you to. Because what a prenup basically is, is an arbitration agreement. You're agreeing to go to a certain beaten to deal with the issue of the gap. So it's very important that it's a responsible and reliable beaten. So one concern with just a blank line that you fill in is that people might fill in a beaten that is ultimately not able to be helpful. So it's just important to do your research and make sure that you're putting in a responsible beaten when you make that commitment. And the second difference is that the Ashar Coalition prenup covers all issues. So you're agreeing to deal with not only the get, but also custody and financial issues all in beaten. With the RCA prenup, there are optional sections where if you want to, you can make that commitment, but you can also just say, all I want to discuss is the get. And most young couples who come to the Aura office and sign a prenup just stick with the get. They don't necessarily want to agree to arbitrate custody and finances because they're, you know, 21 and have no money or no kids yet. And just the idea of that is kind of like, I don't even know where to start. So that's sort of a big difference that the actual divorce process looks extremely different with a Yashar coalition prenup, because in that case, you're doing the entire divorce in Baden versus a typical RCA prenup, where unless you added the optional sections, you're just dealing with the get in Baton, and then you would have the option to deal with the civil issues, you know, in court or in Baton. And I'll add, there is a halachic reality where the halachic rule is that if two Jews have a problem with each other, they should resolve that dispute in Baton. However, you can have situations where there are safety concerns, where there's a need for child support to be garnished in a more formal way, and where you do need sort of the, the strong enforcement power of the civil court in order to make that effective. So the halacha and civil legalities of that get complicated. And that's sort of a big difference between the two documents. Right. But I could also argue, and I don't know if that's a good enough argument. Uh, when I was listening to the headlines podcast on, on Aguno and that whole podcast, basically, they were talking about, I for the first time, I realized that the, the Aguno are spending money they have to pay the Diana, they have to pay the judges of the Baton. And when you're going to court, I think, I don't think, are there fees? I mean, you have to pay your lawyer, but are you paying every judge, every jury duty member? I mean, there's no jury duty, but every staff member who needs to be there, isn't that in taxes? I, maybe I'm wrong completely. No, I mean, you're, you're very much on the right track. In court, there are fees, they're pretty limited. Fees are not the issue, and you're not paying for a judge's time. That's being paid by all of our tax dollars, exactly as you said. Um, now, one thing I will point out is that going through a civil process 
can be enormously expensive and take a super long time. So I'm not saying that it's never a good decision to go to beat in on substantive divorce issues, because if it's a good and responsible beat in, you could get a good ruling ultimately much faster and cheaper than you would get in court. I think the key is sort of a that it's a good beat in because in a bad beat in you can spend I mean, you can hemorrhage money and not get anywhere. And I've seen that happen. And also, again, you do have some situations where there are safety concerns or there's a need for more enforcement where the Baton just cannot offer that in the same way that a court does. So there is an element of having to figure out where cases belong based on the circumstances. And people who care about doing this in a halachic way will work with their rabbanim to figure out if they have a hetzer to go to court based on their situation or not. That's something that people work out with their own halakha guidance. But again, there are pros and cons to every method of resolving a divorce. And it, it's so case specific because the same method that can be just a godsend in one case can be a disaster in another case. So you just have to kind of know the situation. There's no bulletproof solution. Yes. Undoing a marriage is hard. You know, there's so many details and so many emotions. There's there are a million systems out there and like we haven't really found a perfect way to do it. Although there are some really exciting new developments. And I think part of what's exciting about the prenup is that it's also a commitment that in the event that God forbid we do get a divorce, it's not everyone take their gloves off and go at each other, but that you're going to do it in an ethical way and a, a mental way. And that I think we're seeing in our communities that as divorce does sometimes become more common, there's also more talk about how do we do it in an ethical way? If it's going to happen and the marriage can't be saved, then how do we do this so that we minimize the damage to children and to communities in general? Right. So speaking of Rabbanim and going to your Rabbanim and people you trust, the Jewish leaders that you trust, a lot of the abuse, I feel like, happens also on the spiritual level, the spiritual abuse, the rabbanim, the bateidin that have the opportunity to do more or can be more helpful and they refuse to do that or they drag things on forever or they take people's money and they're not able to provide results. Can you speak a little bit more about that and why is that happening and how is how are we tolerating this and why is why are they still upstanding members of the community who are respected if they are taking advantage or, or not doing enough in a situation where a lot more needs to be done? Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges about the based-in system in the United States is that it's totally ad hoc. And what that means is that, you know, say, for example, you want to open a therapy office, right? There's a process. You have to have certain degrees. You have to get accreditation. You have to do continuing education. There, You know, there's... There are guidelines that come with being able to say, hi, I'm a therapist, come work with me. With the based in system, there's nothing like that. Anyone can open a based in. They probably don't even necessarily need to have smicha. They can invent their own stationery. There's no real rhyme or reason. There are obviously established batidin and sort of hole in the wall batidin. But one thing that's so challenging here is that anyone can make a based in at any time and there's no sort of central accreditation and there's no central person saying this is okay this is not okay you also see an issue where batidin even if they will privately say i don't respect that person they're never going to publicly say it because if they feel like if i don't respect 
Rabbi so-and-so's, you know, rulings, then he's not going to respect my rulings. And then the whole process becomes much more complicated. So part of the issue with the based system is just that we don't really have a way of separating the legitimate reliable Batedin from the illegitimate unreliable Batedin. We also have issues in some communities where, you know, there isn't, there might be only one based in, either there are multiple Batedin and there's a confusion about where to go, or in some cases there's only one based in, and if that based in isn't working for you, there isn't really another option. So people can get very stuck. And I think there aren't universal rules and procedures as to how should a based in handle a get issue and what should the process be and what should the bedside manner look like. And it's just essentially everyone reinvents their own wheel for the most part. There's some collaboration, but the fact that it's such a wild west where anyone can sort of open up shop and they're all following different rule books makes it really hard for people to navigate. And I think this is why also the information before you sign is so fundamental because signing arbitration to a good based in can really help you with your get process. Signing, ar signing arbitration to a based in that's going to say, uh, you know, I tried two things and it didn't work. Good luck can leave you stuck for years and years. And so you really have to know where you're going before you go. I do think as communities, though, there are some Batedin that are completely rogue in some cases in the past or has protested against certain rabbis or Batedin that were consistently bad actors. But there's definitely a lot more to do as a community in holding certain institutions accountable in a way that individuals can't and that other Batedin might not be able to do just for pragmatic reasons. You know, when you mentioned the spiritual abuse, part of what's so hard about this is that I Get refusal is a spiritual problem as much as it's a practical one. And it really takes a spiritual solution. And people have to feel like the Rabbanim care and the Batidin care and the community cares. Because if they don't feel that from anyone, then all they're experiencing is that this aspect of halacha is hurting me and no one cares. And that's, I think, a terrible feeling. Yeah. So how, how is it different in Israel? Because it's not so hefker with starting your own Beit Din, I think because it's part of the civil process. So there is some accountability and regulation involved. And they're still abusing the system by stretching things out, saying they can't do anything anymore. Why is there this lack of motivation to help resolve this as quickly as possible? It's a good question. It's hard to always know. I think part of the challenge with the revenue in Israel is that there's often a significant cultural gap between the Dayanim the judges and the people who are coming to court. Even in a case where you have, say, a modern Orthodox, you know, more Datsilumi couple that's coming into Beitin and a Dayan up there, there's a cultural difference between those two people, even though they're both from. So sometimes there can be an element where, from the Dayanim's perspective, it might not be clear why a divorce needs to happen. Okay, so the marriage isn't amazing. Oh, well, you know, work it out. So just from the very beginning, you can have different points of view on do people deserve a divorce just because they want one? How hard do we try to save the marriage? That sort of thing. And I think that, and I will say this for myself as well, I try to check this. There's a real balance when you do this work between being idealistic and also being able to sleep at night and go for a run and not be weighed down by sort of the weight of 
all of the sad things that you see. And I think people sometimes like tip that over and they get to a point where it's almost too pragmatic and not idealistic enough. And they're just like, okay, I tried one thing. It didn't work. Oh, well, these things happen. You know, what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? And so I think for all of us who are in this profession, you have to kind of watch yourself that you're not getting too far on that path because you need to have some of that fire and energy. And I can't believe this is happening in order to be effective. Right. I just side question, would it be so wrong if we granted people divorces right away? So it doesn't schlep on so it doesn't become an extortion tool unless they're Kohanim involved where they can't remarry if they want to. But you know what? If the worst case scenario, six months later, a year later, they decide to remarry, then, you know, they could remarry. It's so easy to get married. You don't, you know, you don't even need a qualified rabbi to do that. You just need two Adim and the Harayat Mekudesha situation. So shouldn't we work I mean, shalom bias is very important. And to add, I, I guess it's a silly comment or maybe not, but the Jewish Orthodox communities, there is more of a stigma to get divorced. It's not something people just jump into so fast necessarily, which makes the Jewish divorces so much more complicated because the ones that actually do proceed to divorce have a lot more at stake and they still want it. So can you speak a little bit more to that? That's a really good question. And I think about that a lot that there's this instinct sometimes to make divorce harder because the feeling is that if we make divorce harder, people will work on their shalom bias. And to me, I think that intervention is coming too late. Whenever I get someone complaining to me about the work we do at Ora and you're making divorce too easy and what's with this helpline, what I say, which I honestly believe, is that if you care about shalom bias and that's your issue, set up a fund so that every couple that wants therapy can get access to as much therapy as they need to fix their relationship. To me, I think that's where you want to intervene. There are couples who struggle for years deciding if they're going to move to a divorce or if they're going to work it out. What resources are we providing to those couples? What kind of support do they have? You know, couples therapy is expensive. Couples therapy plus individual therapy, which is what a lot of people need to progress, is extremely expensive. So to me, I feel like if you want to support marriage, invest in resources that support marriage. But by the time someone's in divorce court, they are often so far down that path. They've gone through so much internally to get to the place where they're filing that it's often too late. You very, very occasionally have people who do sort of dial back and rekindle the relationship. But I think for a, in a lot of situations, if the intervention would have worked, it had to have been a few years earlier. At this point, they're so far in that it's very, very hard to go back. And from what I see, divorce is still stigmatized. There is a social cost. There is a huge financial cost. It means, you know, I think for those of us who have young children, just imagining spending every other weekend not with your children, you know, I think a lot of us can't even wrap our heads around what that might mean. And that's true for most divorced families. So I think the costs of divorce are so high that people only go there when they really feel like they have tried everything else. And if someone, because people will suggest, well, what if they get into a fight and it escalates? To me, I feel like if someone is so emotionally stunted that, you know, they didn't like their birthday present and they went and filed for divorce, there are probably bigger problems at play and they might not have the psychological resources at that age or at whatever stage of development they are to have a healthy relationship. But I think two healthy people want to work it out and 
they might need resources to work it out. But the way to give them those resources is to give it to them when they need it and when it's helpful, not when they've already made the excruciating decision to go ahead and get divorced. And you're then sort of forcing them into a process that they're not necessarily even open to. Right. Which makes the Jewish divorce a more ugly, litigious and worse process. And I know my father has been involved in this issue on an international level in Europe. Chief Rabbi Goldschmidt, Chief Rabbi of Moscow, and President of the Conference of European Rabbis. I know a little bit about it, but can you tell me from your perspective what has happened through the work that he has pushed for and done? Absolutely. So one issue we have with get refusers in general is that they hop from place to place. And it could be in Brooklyn going from Stiebel to Stiebel. It could be going from city to city. But you have these cases where as soon as a community, as soon as A, we find them, then the community is made aware of the issue. Then we convince the community to actually take action and start to hold this person accountable. By then they've moved on somewhere else. And so, and you see this especially in Europe because someone can go from London to Antwerp to, you know, Paris to, you know, just sort of do a circuit going into communities. And by the time you catch up with them, it's almost too late. So I think part of the work that your father's done is also unify the rabbinic community in Europe so that there is much clearer and faster communication. And when you do have a case where someone's sort of shul hopping in Europe, everyone's aware of it. And you don't have this long lag where, you know, someone has seven months to make friends before they start, you know, feeling some accountability. Another huge factor is expanding what the Israeli government can do with international cases. Because one thing a lot of people don't realize is that in certain circumstances, if you travel to Israel, the government can sort of exert jurisdiction over the case. So there have been some recent laws that have expanded the government's ability to do that and sort of clarify that a little bit. So basically what happened was if you have in, so in Israel right now, if you're an Israeli citizen who's refusing get uh, the... Israeli government could put you in, in into prison, right? Essentially, they and before that, they can freeze bank accounts. They can take away your driver's license. There are sort of a, a series of sanctions going from less serious to more serious that they can impose. And so, why is there an Aguna issue in Israel if you have those resources? So that's the challenge. They have the resources, but they don't necessarily use them. And there's, there's a time gap. So there was a study done a few years ago in Israel that tracked how long it took to get a psakhi of get, which is a ruling that a get is required. And they found, and again, this is a study coming from several years ago, they found that it took on average seven years just to get that psak. So, and until you have a psak like that, you can't necessarily use sanctions. The sanctions have to line up with the intensity level of the psak. And this sort of gets complicated, but there are different levels. There can be a, it would be nice if you gave a get. Okay, you really have to give a get. Okay, we can coerce you to give a get. There are different levels of a sock of a ruling that a beaten can issue, and the sanctions have to line up with the appropriate level. And so because it takes so long to get to the level of ruling that you need for those sanctions to kick in, A, people get stuck. I think this is a huge piece. People get stuck in their position. Try to change a habit that you've been doing for seven years, right? If you've been eating half a bar of chocolate, you know, before bed every night for seven years, good luck. That's going to be some hard work to change that. People get stuck. 
And then the other challenge you see is that people negotiate out of it. That if someone sees there isn't a light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know that I'm going to get help in time to really release me from this situation. Then they start giving up on things and saying, okay, well, fine, you want this, you take that, I'll agree to this deal and I'll get the get. Because another shadow to this whole issue is that it's not just the women who are waiting for a get and suffering. It's also all the women in the U.S. and in Israel who agree to deals that really don't give them what they would otherwise get and don't give them enough to survive on because they're so afraid about the get. So a lot of women will say, if I get my kids and I get my get, I'm good. I can walk out of this marriage without a penny, except that what happens afterwards and how do you support yourself and your family when you don't have any of these financial assets because you agreed to give them up. So that's sort of where it gets complicated. Yeah, and that's so painful for me to hear how women are almost encouraged right away to just give up all their rights just to get that get. And and that's the part that the prenup, I think, protects women from completely having to raise a family without child support. Forget about alimony. Like alimony is, is like the unattainable dream that they let go of before. Yeah, child child support, Jewish tuition, in the States at least, supporting a family on your own, it's just, it's cruel. It's cruel. And so with the new law with Israel, is that anyone who is a Jew but not an Israeli citizen, and they get the cooperation, now you're saying it takes seven years on average, I will say, though, just to clarify, the beauty of the international Israel strategy is that you skip that time frame, oh. that it's actually it's much faster to bring to go through the Beitin outside of Israel and then bring the case to Israel than it is to go through the Beitin process within Israel, because you can't get access to those sanctions much faster. If the Israeli Beitin is rubber stamping a decision from another Beitin, that is ultimately much faster than them reaching their own decision. Yeah. So so now anyone who is hopping or hopping around, if they cannot go to Israel, basically, once they get that sanction and they are exiled from their home country, which is a big deal. And I think that's a big win, potentially. And I might not be such a big threat or loss for American Jews. But I what I'm hearing and what I've learned is that for European Jews, not to be able to be buried in Israel or to ever go to Israel is a huge loss. Right. And enough enough to give a get. Right. And many European Jews travel to Israel for at least one of the Shlosh Regalim all the time. That you, you see their entire, you know, half of London is in Israel for Pesach and Sukkot. And, you know, when you're just a short plane ride, I can't imagine that, but when you're just a short plane ride away from Israel, you go much more frequently. And it's a, it's, it's sort of the center of gravity for those communities. Right. So this is a painful topic to talk about, something not so many things rile me up extremely. <laughs> I have my hot topics that get me extremely passionate and emotional. This is definitely up there on the list. And But I'm happy to be living in a time where things are happening, where the Jewish rabbinic leadership is stepping up more than they have ever, I think, in the Jewish history. It's also a problem that is arised that exists more today. But I think, where is the Jewish leadership? Where is it? You know, we don't have Gdole Hador. 
well, whoever we have today, that's who we have. We better call them the G'dolei Hador, and they better step up to their posts and, and take the responsibility. I think that's one of the biggest issues. No, the rabbis don't want to take the responsibility of taking a stance on a lot of the issues, which, so it's incredible that the Shivish slash Haredi community did come up with their own prenup, even if it's not bulletproof. I know prenup or postnup is bulletproof, but it's a step in the right direction. And I love the idea of the prenup parties. I think postnup parties or the postnup parties, which the postnup party. We've had both. More, more postnup parties, but we've had some prenup parties too. Yeah. And making it a movement thing, a light thing, and a we love Jewish marriage thing. And then if communities really want to prevent divorce or avoid divorce, then provide more support, the support that actually needs to happen in the marriage while the marriage is still happening. And it's extremely expensive and it's very hard. It's not something that could be solved overnight. But I feel like it's a happy conversation that we have today because things are happening and enough people care about this enough to do something. Even though you have rabbis who clearly say, you know, you have people who get cancer, you have people who don't get married ever, and then you have people who are aguno. And that's, <laughs> I'm not buying that. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think the good news, really, like so much of what you said, I've been doing this for probably about like 10 years in some capacity. And the world has changed so much in, in such good ways on this issue that it used to be radical to talk about the get as a form of domestic abuse. And now everyone's like, right, like we knew that, you know, the prenup used to be something that only like activists did. And now it's like every random couple before their wedding, we get mobbed during wedding season, you know, at the over office. Um, we started having like three, four couples at once just to make it work with our schedules. Um, we see that the cases are shifting and that Rabbis are stepping up and the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, passed a resolution that all member rabbis can only officiate at weddings where the couple signs a prenup. We've heard from more and more rabbis that they won't go to a wedding if the couple doesn't sign a prenup. If they're asked to give a bracha under the chuppah, they ask about the prenup. But if there's no prenup, they don't go. Like we're really seeing this shift. And of course, and again, Every prenup has its pros and cons, but the fact that Yashar Coalition is doing what they're doing and bringing this prenup to communities that have never heard the word prenup before in this context is remarkable. And I think we are seeing this, this shift in this energy because there really is so much that we can do. There's a lot we don't have control over in life and in these issues, but there is even more that we do. And by coming together as a community, we know that we can make a difference because we see it, like we see it happening, you know, before our eyes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kesha, for coming on to the show and really explaining this. I think we did basics. We did some deep diving in. And thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. So can you just give us a few quick resources on how to find you, how to reach out to you or the organization? Absolutely. So, so our website is www.getora.org. And on that website, you can find links to all of our resources. The best place to go to if you need help with the GET situation is our helpline, which is called One Step Forward. And um, you can find them at info at osfline.org. And we also really suggest if it's not you, but you have a friend or a family member or some other person that you're worried about, you can call the helpline as well. 
And people are also welcome to reach out to us to find out more about the prenup. We facilitate prenups in our office. We have notaries on staff. We also help a lot of people figure out, you know, I don't know where I'm going to live, which documents should I sign? We mediate with couples who can't agree on signing the prenup. Um, and so really any wrinkle on a prenup question, you're welcome to come to us. You can also email prenup at getora.org and it will get to us. And we're really happy to just be a resource for the community in any way that we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just mention, if you are listening to this and you would like to share your story related to this, you are also welcome to come onto the show and share your story. If you'd like to remain anonymous, if you'd like to take it public, this is your platform. So I'd like to share that as a resource as well. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe to the show. Also, this is available on jewishcoffeehouse.com, on franciscamusic.com, available on any of your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please make sure to share this podcast with your friends and have a great week. And if you need to reach me, you know how to do that. Just email franciscakkay at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It really means a lot to me, especially during COVID-19 when you're not commuting and you're still listening. So I appreciate you so much. Take care and see you next week. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.